Well, I want to invite you to remain standing in honor of the Word of God. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read the last verse of where we left off last week to serve as a bridge into today's message as we continue to think about the end and preparing for the end and how we live in light of the end and more importantly, how we live in light of the promises God has given us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, this is what it says. It says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. No, you can stop. We'll stop right there and have a seat. And, and this image, the light and the, and, and the day versus the night in the darkness, this is where we left off last week talking about our identity. And we're going to come back to that in a moment, but, but I want to set some things up for you by telling you about an experience I had this week in the darkness. Now, let me ask you, and I think I've asked this before, but uh, anybody in the room, are you, are you a morning person? You like to get up nice and early before the day has started. So all you are saints. God bless you. We are in the same boat. You are much more holy than everyone else, right? Okay, how about, how about those who need extra grace? How about those people that are night owls, right? We'll pray for you, poor souls, and ask for... No, no, no. It's all good. In fact, my wife is a night owl. I'm a morning person, so you kind of get the, the joke here. But, but here's the deal. I, I'm kind of getting back to my routine, well, I had COVID in August, and since then, uh, it's been hard to kind of get back into the routine. I've been tired really easily, but, but about a week and a half ago, I started to get up early again. It's like I've missed it. And so I'm up, and I'm up at like 5 a.m. again. And so this, this week, there was a day, it was Thursday, I was up nice and early, probably about 5 a.m., and, uh, you know, I usually have at least one, maybe two cups of coffee before anyone is up, and, you know, that early this time of year, it is pitch black outside, and every light in our house is out except for kind of a, a somewhat dim office lamp that I like to read by, and so I've got my coffee, and I've got my reading, and it is dark outside, and it is quiet, and it is serene, it is, you know, for those morning people, it's, it's that moment of godliness in the morning. You, you, you're with me, right? And then out of nowhere, bang, 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 on my front door. Now, I don't know about you, but I usually don't have visitors at 5.30 in the morning. And I don't know about you, but if it's 5.30 in the morning and everyone's asleep and everything is dark and something bangs on my door, I'll tell you what, I almost lost the coffee out of my cup and I almost lost the coffee that I had already digested, right? It scared me so well that I was, I was in self-defense mode. I was in home defense mode. I was in family defense mode. It, it, it scared me. And now here's the thing. Uh, if that would have happened at 5.30 in the late afternoon, early evening, I would have had nowhere near the same response. If it would have happened at 5.30 in the afternoon slash evening and someone knocked on my door, I would have said, oh, wonder who's at the door. Because generally, unless it's the Northwest in December through February, it's somewhat light at 5.30 in the afternoon, right? It's somewhat daytime. And so because it's day, there's a sense of peace and security, even if there's a visitor at the door that I don't expect. But because it happened in darkness... My fear just ramped all the way up, right? Now, this connects to our passage today. Let's turn a corner back to this image. 
Because the scripture I just read that we talked about last week, it describes those who are in Christ. It describes everyone who has said, I trust not in myself that I will go to heaven because I'm a good person, but it describes everyone who says, I trust that Jesus loved me so much that he lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death and he was my substitute. He died for me, was buried on the third day he rose again. The Bible says that everyone who believes that you are now all of the day. All of the light. You are no longer of the darkness and you are no longer of the night. This is the description that we have here. And and because of that, what we find is that because you're of the day, you you have a promise tied to your identity. You have a promise tied to your identity as someone who's in Christ. It's the promise of who you are now. It's the promise of the the eternal destiny that you will experience in heaven. But this promise, listen here, this promise, it is actually meant to impact every aspect of your life today. Because of the promise that is tied to your identity, here's your big idea. You and I, we are to live in light of the promise. You know what I mean? Live in light of the promise. If someone knocks on your door and it's light outside, you visibly see them. You are to live in light. You are to live considering the promise. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, last week uh, I cut the message in half. I realized we had just a little bit too much. I say a little bit jokingly. We had just a little bit too much to cover. And so last week we talked about verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians 5, which talks about the end times. It talks about how Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. And we said, okay, we need, we need to be prepared for this. And so we began to have what I called a prepper's checklist for the end. How do you prepare for the end? In last week's content, it was, it was by and large, it was mindset. I'm not going to review it in, in total, but we said, okay, if you're going to be prepared for the end, the very first thing you do is, is don't obsess over the end. We said, don't be the person who's trying to nail down the exact day or the exact time or the exact hour of Jesus' return. Don't be that person who obsesses over the end. But then we said, the other end of that spectrum is, is to not overlook the reality of the end. Well, some of us, we might say, oh yeah, you know, I, I need to know when Jesus is coming back. Others, they might say, you know, Jesus might come back, but I'm going to live my life preoccupied with the things of the world. We said, don't do those things. And where we landed, we said, we said, remember your identity. Remember who you are in Christ. And so this week, we pick up where we left off. We pick up where we left off. And, and this week is going to be a little bit more hands-on. You're going to have some, some things that you can grab onto a little bit more securely than just some mindset checklist items. So, so jump in with me. If you haven't already, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going we're gonna to launch out of verse 6, and we're going to be talking about how do we live in light of the promise. And the first thing we're going to see is that you stay alert in light of the promise. You stay alert in light of the, pro, uh, in light of the promise. Verses 6 through 8. Re- read along with me. Here's what it says. It says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith 
and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What, what Paul is doing here, he is describing what it looks like to live as a child of light. He's recognizing that every one of us, we live in this tension that pulls us toward, am I going to live in a way that honors God as a child of light, or am I going to live in a way that dishonors God in the midst of the darkness that surrounds me? Every one of us, we feel that tension. And so what he does is he describes, this is how you, this is how you live as a child of the day, as a child of the light, as a child of God. And these, these words that he uses, these metaphors he uses, they're very descriptive. He says, be awake instead of asleep. He says, be sober or sober-minded instead of inebriated or, or drunken or, or, or uh, without, without a clear mind. He uses these terms, and he says, these are terms that really, they, they make it so that you live a life that is alert. Now, let's flesh those terms out a little bit more. Let's try to get a very clear picture based on the words that he uses of what a life that is alert looks like. Let me show you. First of all, an alert life is disciplined. An alert life is disciplined. T take, the, take the contrast of being sober versus being drunken. Someone who's drunken, they're, they're not very disciplined in, in their lifestyle. They're, they're not very disciplined in, in the way they approach something like alcohol. But, but the flip side of that is to be sober. This is the idea of being clear-minded, of thinking correctly. You ever experienced uh, uh, drunkenness? Or you ever experienced someone who, who, who was drunk? In fact, I'm going to tell you about my first and only bar fight. You guys want a little dirt on your pastor? You want to hear about my first and only bar fight? Get this. My first and only bar fight, I was about 18 years old. Now you're thinking, you're not 21. You're, you're right. You're right. I was at a bar, and I was standing on the threshold of the door of the tavern, and I had a family member, and I was trying to get their attention. There was a little bit of drama, and I was trying to get their attention. I needed to talk to them, and I was there, and I had my brother, who was about three years younger than me. He was right here next to me, and my brother might have had a little bit of a short fuse. We'll just say that for the start, right? And so I am yelling into the tavern. I'm trying to get this person's attention, and it's not going super great, and as as I'm doing this, there is someone who is a, a, a patron of the bar, and they're sitting there, and they decide it's going to be a really good idea to give these two teenagers a bad time. And so this person, from a distance, they start yelling at us, and they start getting kind of agitated, and they, they decide that they're going to come over to the door to start to yell at us and start to berate us. I mean, it, they were not... They were not a friendly personality. We'll put it that way. And as they came closer, remember my brother, not very long of a temper, he, the best he can with his ninth grade fist, he reaches over my shoulder with the biggest wheelbarrow punch he can, and he lands it right on this guy's jaw, right? Now, the guy didn't go down. He, he was a big enough guy. It didn't make much of a difference. But you know what happened in that moment is that everything kind of like just the overflow. There were people pulling this guy away. There were people standing in the door pushing us out. It was, it was a crazy moment. But here's the deal. I don't think this guy who was clearly inebriated, who had clearly way past his limit, I don't think this guy would have done the things he did if it wasn't for the alcohol. His mind was impaired. He, he wasn't sober. He wasn't sober-minded. He wasn't thinking clearly. That's the, the point of this scripture here. 
And this, this contrast that it draws between being drunken and being sober, it's the contrast of a life that is, if it's drunken, it's undisciplined, it's uncontrolled, it doesn't think clearly about especially the things of God, versus a life that is sober or sober-minded or thinks clearly, that has, that has a mind that matches as closely as possible the mind of God. It's to be sober-minded. It's not just alcohol that you avoid to be sober-minded, though. It's anything that fills your mind that is contrary with the Word of God, isn't it? How do you remain sober-minded when you live in a world that is constantly trying to fill your mind with things that are contrary to the Word of God? You be disciplined. And you know what that discipline looks like? It starts right here. I want to ask you a few questions. I want to ask you a few questions about your lifestyle. If you have a, spiritually speaking, if you have a workout lifestyle or if you have a go-out lifestyle, not talking about going out and whatnot, I'm talking about your, your habits. And listen, these are not meant to be the pastor having a gotcha moment to make you feel guilty. If you are in Christ, you are covered by grace. This is not a point my finger at you and make you feel bad, but this is a, let's do a self-evaluation about how alert you are of how, how disciplined you are. Let me ask you, how often do you reach for the Word of God before you reach for your phone in the morning? How, how often would I find you sitting with Bible open, thinking intentionally about the truth that God has revealed in His Word? How regularly do you get comfy in your couch with the TV on instead of being humble on your knees before the Lord? How about even this, this a moment we're having together as a church? Is your discipline such that you're here consistently, regularly, week after week? It's, it's what you do. It's part of who you are. Or is even a, a worship service a, an occasional moment for you? where you once in a while, uh, based on the option, worship the Lord God Almighty with his people. Again, this isn't to, this isn't to get you. This is to get you thinking. This is to get you considering how disciplined you are, how sober you live. If you live a life that is alert, when you are alert because you are disciplined, you know what you can do? You can smell a lie. You can smell a half-truth. You can tell when someone's handling the word in a way that's twisting it instead of being clear and just delivering it the way it's meant to be delivered. This is what discipline looks like. This is what it looks like to be alert. The alert life is disciplined. But let's, let's look at the other illustration here. The other metaphor here is the metaphor uh, not of being sober or dr drunk, but it's being awake or asleep. It says that you were of the day or, or you were to be awake. You were not to be asleep. This is, this is talking about how an alert life is active. It's a life that's on the move. It's a life that's, that's not asleep. The idea here is to be asleep is to be, is to be lazy, or slothful. It's to be more apt to be doing nothing than to be doing the things that a person who is awake is doing. When I think about this idea, it's, it's really the idea of apathetic. 
maybe that's not a word that you're familiar with. To be, to be apathetic is to, to live without passion, without care. It's to, to not have great passion for the things of God. It's, it's almost like you're, you're, you're living your life, you're going through the motions, but in, in essence, you're actually asleep when it comes to spiritual things. Are you alert or are you apathetic? When you're, when you're alive, when you're awake, typically that means you're, you're moving, you're serving, it's, it's the mindset that is the difference between lounging in your lazy boy watching the game or being the, the player on the field doing everything he can to make the play. Which one of those pictures describes your life? Awake or asleep? This is part of why we offer week after week this card that says, put me in coach. It's not because... You know what, we're desperate and we need you to do something. It's because we know that if you're serving, you're growing. We know that if you're active, you're not asleep. We know that you're not meant to sit and do nothing and just be someone who consumes spiritually. We know that as, as those who have been saved by Christ, we are to be those who are living out actively and alive the calling that we've been given. See, an alert life, it's disciplined. Uh, an alert life is awake, but, but look at the last picture. An alert life is armed. An alert life is armed. Spiritually speaking, I mean, this is, this is the spiritual concealed carry license that every one of us should be have, have on us, right? I, I recognize the county we're in. I recognize much of the audience. And you, I say, you to be, you're to be armed. And I know there are people that are like, yeah, <laughs> preach it, Mike. That's what I'm talking about. But I'm not talking about your pistol. I'm not talking about your pocket knife. I'm talking about you being spiritually armed. Look again with me at verse 8. It says, Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is talking about someone who is, spiritually speaking, you are battle-ready so that you don't get beat up. This is talking about the, the, the armaments you're meant to have on you. And again, it's not talking about a physical weapon. This is talking about three specific things. Now, this parallels with the armor of God in, in Ephesians 6. But for now, let's just stick with these three items. It says three things, faith, hope, and love. Let, let's think about those for a minute. Faith is belief. Faith is trust. When you are armed with faith, that means you're walking through life and whatever you might experience, whether it's something that is incredibly heartbreaking or painful, whether it's something that is incredibly difficult or challenging, or even if it's something good, whatever you experience in life, you're trusting that God is on the throne you're trusting that God is not only good and loving, but he is powerful and in control. A life of faith is a life that walks through any situation, even the most difficult, and they say, says, I, I still trust in God. Life might be falling apart. I still have faith. That's a life that's armed. And then hope. Hope is this idea that, that there, is, there is something in the future that I expect to receive. 
Hope is the idea that says, you know what? Life might get so bad that they might even, they might even take my body. But guess what? My hope is in something eternal. My hope is in heaven. You, you realize this is the hope that the martyrs of, of days past held on to. When faithful men and women said, I believe in Christ and you can do whatever you want to me, but nothing is going to change the hope I have in heaven. And so they were martyred, they were murdered, they were burned at the stakes. You realize this is the hope that that Christians in Afghanistan hold on to right now. I mean, we have all had broken hearts over Afghanistan. We don't know how many people are left there that shouldn't be there. We do know there are reports of missionaries and Christians in that country that said, I think I'm called to stay, and so I am not leaving. And they say that with full realization that that might mean their life will be forfeit. But they're armed. They're armed not with rifles and bombs. They're armed with faith and hope. You know the third word here? love. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, the greatest of these three is love. The love we're talking about here is the love where you say, I am willing to do whatever it takes to show the love of Jesus to others around me. This means in this context, we love each other so much that, that, that we're doing everything we can to not be divided. This means we love each other so much that we do whatever we can to serve and meet the needs of each other. We'll return to this idea in just a moment. This means that we love, as Jesus says, our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That we are willing to lay down our rights or our preferences or our agenda. We are willing to give up our resources, our time, whatever it might be, for the sake of showing someone that not only do we love them, but our love is a reflection of the great love in Jesus Christ. You realize you carry the greatest weapon every day. Not only faith, not only hope, but you are armed with love. This is, this is a life that is alert. This is a life that stays alert in light of the promise. This is a life that says, you know what? I, I, I'm not just going to be like on, on cruise control. I'm not just going to coast through my days and whatever happens, happens. This is a life that says, I am going to live a life that is locked on and it's alert. I'm going to do it this through being disciplined. I'm going to do this through being active. And, and I am going to do this by being armed with faith, with hope, and with love. You are to stay alert in light of the promise. But let's keep going. Let's get to verses 9 and 10. Because after we see this, this life that is alert because they're a, you're a child of the day and a child of light, ultimately a child of God, the next thing we see then is that you are to stay confident in light of the promise. You're to stay confident. And this is not a confidence in yourself like, oh, look how smart I am or look how strong I am or look how I have my life all together or look how moral I am. No, this is a confidence that we find is really a confidence that's all about Christ. Verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This, this passage talks about the two destinies of every human being. Every human being ever created is going to experience one of two destinies. There's no middle ground that says that there is a destiny which is wrath, and there is a destiny that is, that is salvation. And this is reminding us that, that we who are of the day, we who are of the light, we who are children of God, we have this promise. This is the promise the promise of salvation. Now, the question then is, how do I know what my destiny is? It's the same question, really, we asked last week when we said, how do I know what my identity is? You see, if you're in Christ, our confident future is eternal salvation. But last week, if you were with us, we said that your identity, your identity, whether you're a child of light or a child of darkness, your identity is based entirely upon your relationship to Jesus Christ. Those who have accepted Jesus as the perfect sinless son of God who died to pay the price for their sins, who was your substitute and that he was resurrected on the third day, everyone who believes that, you are transformed, you are changed, you are adopted into the family, you are now a child of light and a child of day. That is your identity. But the flip is tragically true. Those who, who push away Christ, those who reject the claim of Christ, whether they do it because they say, you know what, I'm good enough, I don't need Jesus, or whether they do it because they say, I, I don't want any kind of moral boundaries, I just want to live however I want. Either way, rejecting Christ means that they have the opposite destiny. See, just like your identity is determined by your relationship with Christ, your eternal destination, it is determined completely by your relationship with Christ. Now, now, for some in this room, for some in this room, that means you, you have some thinking to do. If you're in this room and, and you have yet to make a decision about Christ, for you, this is a call that says, I plead with you. Don't, don't put this off any longer. Don't, don't chase the things of this world. Christ is here holding out his hand, just offering his love and his grace to wash away your guilt and to give you this promise of eternal salvation. But for others in this room who are in Christ, for others who have made that decision, who have accepted him, this is meant to, this is meant to increase your confidence and, and it's actually meant to decrease your fear. Because if you have this confident hope of eternal salvation, just like we talked about with, with the brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan or all of the martyrs for generations, this gives us this incredible confidence that says, when this life ends, a new and better life begins. Our, our confident future, the promise that we have that was, was given to us by the blood of Christ, the promise we have is eternal salvation. But, but this promise is built on something. If our confident future is eternal salvation, then our confident foundation is Jesus, our Savior. Now follow along with me. Back to verse 9. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through. Grab onto that word through. 
If, metaphorically speaking, wrap your hands around that word through. To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. This is the foundation of our salvation. When the scripture here, when it explicitly says Jesus died for you, along with that, it implicitly reminds us that Jesus was resurrected for you. This is the foundation. Listen very carefully. The foundation of your salvation will never, ever, ever be how good you are. The foundation of your salvation will never, ever be how moral you are. The foundation of your salvation will never ever be that you're a little bit better than your neighbor or your brother or your coworker. The foundation of your salvation and for everyone, it is built completely on Jesus Christ. In fact, that word Christ, when we read Jesus Christ, sometimes we think it's like his first and last name, right? So, so I'm, I'm Michael Freeman. Michael's my first name. Freeman's my last name. Sometimes we read the scripture, we read Jesus Christ, we think, oh, Jesus Christ, Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name. That's not how it works, though. Christ isn't his last name, Christ is his title. You can translate that word, Messiah. You can translate that word, Christ, anointed one. You can translate the word Christ simply as Savior. When the scripture says Jesus Christ, it's saying Jesus the Christ or, or Jesus the Savior. He's the foundation, not you. His work is what accomplished your salvation, not yours. Jesus is our confident, our confident foundation is Jesus because he is the one and only Savior. And he became our Savior by his perfect life. He became our Savior through his, his death in our place. And, and he became our Savior through his resurrection in which he gives us new life. But, but Jesus as Savior is not this situation where he says, you know what, I've saved you, have a great life, I'll see you when you come to heaven. It's more than that. See, our confident foundation is Jesus as our Savior. But, but look at the text with me again. See, our confident focus is now Jesus our Lord. Look at the text. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath to obtain salvation through our Lord, Jesus Christ, who died for us. You know that word Lord? That word Lord means authority. It means master. The word Lord means that he is in charge, that he is the boss. The word Lord means that Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over our lives now. He's not this distant guy that cares very little about our life. He is, he's our Lord. In the first century, if you were a servant and you had a Lord, you did everything you could to please your Lord. Now, some lords were bad lords, and so you did everything you could to please your lord because you didn't want to get beaten. You didn't want to be abused, and so you made sure you did everything right. Jesus is not a bad lord. Jesus is not a cruel lord. Jesus is, he is a good lord. Jesus is the best lord. 
Jesus is the one who saved you so he could be your Lord. But here's the problem. Oftentimes when we read the scripture and we read Jesus Christ our Lord or Jesus our Lord, I don't know about you, but sometimes my eyes just skim right over that word Lord. I just miss it. We see it so often that we forget this is describing him as the authority of our lives. I'll give you some homework. If you've got some time this afternoon, or this next week even, I want you to go and read the entirety of the book of Acts. Acts takes place after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension. I want you to read through Acts, and I want you to circle every time it refers to Jesus as Savior, and I want you to circle every time it refers to him as Lord. I think your eyes will be opened. Because over and over and over again, the early church called him Lord. Can I, can I lean into you on this for just a moment? Because Jesus is Lord, it means some things for us today. Because Jesus is Lord, it means you're not. He, he is the authority of our lives. This means some very practical things. This means that your time is not your time. Your time is your Lord's time. This means how you spend your days and your free time, it is meant to fall under the authority of Lord Jesus. This means that you are meant to use all of your time in a way that is aimed at pleasing your, your Lord. This means that your entertainment is not your entertainment. When you sit down for a nice, relaxing evening and you turn on the television or you turn on your video games or you open your book or you turn on your browser or you turn on your phone, what are you watching? What are you consuming? And do you realize that your Lord, if, if, he's right there with you? There's not like a, a button that you can turn off and say, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my thing now. Jesus isn't going to be my Lord. He is Lord over all of that. Do you realize every penny you have, it belongs to the Lord? How we use our resources, all of it is meant to be used in a way that, that honors our Lord. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm not saying you should have no free time. I'm not saying you should have no entertainment. I'm not saying you shouldn't even use your money for things that you enjoy. I'm just saying that all of that falls under the Lordship of Jesus. And you and I were accountable for every, every bit of it. In fact, I like to tell people, when you write out your budget, by the way, I hope you have a written budget. If you don't, you should. But this month, when you write out your budget, or the next time you do it, I want you to take it, and if it's on a computer, print it out, and I want you to just draw a circle around all of it. And next to it, I want you to, to put a little arrow and just write the, the word, the Lord's. Because all of it's his. This is our focus. If we're living in light of the end, if we're living prepared for the return of Christ, if we're living in expectation that this world, one day it will end and that we will be forever in Christ, then we are to be confidently focused with the entirety of our attention, the entirety of our lives in a way that is aimed at pleasing our good, generous, loving our Lord. This is, this is how we confidently live in light of the promise. 
We, we, first of all, we stay alert in light of the promise. We don't get too comfy. We don't, we don't ease in and do nothing. We also live confident in light of the promise because our promise is eternal life because of our Savior, who is also our Lord. But, but if we go a little bit further, the text actually ends with this encouragement to, to stick together in light of the promise. To stick together in light of the promise. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build, up one an, or, or build one another up just as you are doing. It's, he says, therefore. He says, in light of everything we've already said about salvation, about living a life that's alert, about the confidence, about the promise, in light of all of this, he says, because of this, therefore, and then he turns his attention to the context of, of the church. And he reminds us to stick together in light of the promise. See, we stick together, first of all, as a church. We stick together as a church. You need to remember the context. The, the, the very first audience that received this, they, they were a group of people in Thessalonica who through Paul's preaching and teaching, they had become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they, they formed a church. They didn't form a church because they were looking forward to potlucks. Actually, they formed a church because society at large was beginning to kick them out. That Their family would want less and less and maybe nothing to do with them. Their, their business partners would say, I'm not going to do business with you anymore if you're going to follow that Jesus guy. Their synagogue, those who were Jewish, they would be pushed out. They would not be included in their religious activities anymore. They became the church, not because they had nothing to do on a Sunday morning. They became the church because it was how they survived. This is we are like-minded in the most important thing ever. That was the original context. And listen, the context isn't much different for us today. We, we gather here as a church right now for a worship service, but, but I almost hate even using the term worship service because the church is so much more than that. See, the church is not an event. The church is not a building. The church is the people, the community who are in Christ, who gather together for the purpose, the express purpose of living and honoring Christ. See, those who are part of the church, that means that their primary identification is, is these two words, in Christ. You, this means if you're here today and you're part of the church, your primary identification is not your job. It's not your race. It's not your income level. It's not your gender. Your primary identity is not your circumstance or your difficulty or your oppression that you experience. Your primary identity is not your favorite sports teams or your favorite hobby or even your political agenda. Your primary identity as those who are part of the church is these two words. We are in Christ. In Christ. And for those first century believers, they were in Christ in a culture that was growing antagonistic toward them. Guess what? You and I, we are in Christ in a culture that's growing antagonistic towards us. I think this is why he reminds us to stick together. I think this is why he writes these words, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up 
just as you were doing. See, we stick together as a church, but, but then he gives us some exact pinpoint applications. The first is to stick together by encouraging one another. This word encourage, Paul has used it over and over and over again in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's become a major theme. You might actually even remember the definition. To encourage is to come alongside someone and strengthen or comfort them. So when we encourage one another, we come alongside each other for the purpose of comforting or strengthening. Let me give you a few ideas of what this might look like in our church. You know one of the greatest encouragements you can give to someone is is simply these words. Can, Can I pray for you? You ever, you ever shared a difficulty with someone and right there in the moment, they said, can I just pray for you right now? And they do. You know what you're doing in that moment? You're coming alongside them. And it's like you have a, it's like you have a, a pitcher of encouragement and you're just pouring it into their soul. It's an incredible experience. Now I recognize I say that and probably three-fourths of the room, you're like, I could never pray out loud with someone else. Like, am I, why? Like, what are, you, what are you asking of me, right? But, but listen, listen. I think you can. Prayer is not some elegant language. Prayer is not some well-put-together stringing of beautiful, long words, 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 there you go, there's your proof right there. These beautiful words that all of them sound so majestic, you realize you can pray for someone with one sentence. Heavenly Father, I pray you would strengthen my brother or sister as they face this challenge. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind my brother or sister that they are loved in Christ. Amen. I look around, and at least those who I know, everyone in this room could do that. You don't got to be scared. You can encourage. We can encourage each other by serving each other. When, when, I, was, when I was sick and when I had COVID, we would get people texting us like, hey, do you need anything? And, you know, because we're prideful or whatever, like, we'd be like, oh, no, we got it all covered. We're fine, right? And then these stubborn people would still show up at our house with food or, or to care for us. We're like, oh, we said we were fine. What are you doing? No, actually, you know what we said? We said, thank you so much. You have no idea how much this helps. We serve each other. Something like a meal. Something like lending a ha- hand on a project at someone's house. So, so small but so meaningful. We serve each other in the context of the church, right? We serve, we we have people up here serving, leading us in worship. We have people serving. Someone actually brought Starbucks coffee. They set it out on the the counter out there just to to give some coffee to some people at church today. We serve each other by greeting each other, by welcoming. We've got some amazing servants down with the kids right now. What are they doing? They're serving the kids, but you know what? They're serving the parents that are here able to pay attention instead of going like this, shh, shh, shh. All, all sermon with their kid, right? This is how we encourage each other. He says, encourage one another, and then he says, and build up one another. This word build up is interesting. It, it's the word for construct. He says, build, construct something together. When you construct or when you build up someone, what you're doing in that moment is you are bringing improvement to their life so they can live in light of the promise. Let me say that again. When you are building up someone, you are bringing improvement to someone's life so they can live in light of the promise. 
This means that you actually step outside your comfort zone and try to encourage people in their faith. This means that you strive so that people know truth, so that people live truth. This, this means actually for some in this room that it might be time for us to, I don't know, do something crazy like start a life group. There are some mature believers in this room, and it might be time for you to say, you know what, I'm going to start to pour into other people's lives instead of just receiving. When we build up, what we do is we push against the consumeristic mindset of the church where we say, I'm coming to church for what I can get. Instead, we say, I'm coming to church for what I can give, how I can serve, how I can help. (laughs) And I love the last part of verse 11. This is what you're already doing. This church had a reputation for the way they were encouraging one another and the way they were building up one another. Let 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 me give you an idea of what this might look like. What if I gave you the encouragement challenge? What if I asked you right now to think of one person in our church that you can encourage in even a small way this week? Just go ahead right now. I want you to get their their face in your mind. One person that you can do something even small to encourage them. And what if I I challenged you over the next week to to make sure you do that? That'd be pretty awesome, huh? I mean, if everyone in this room did that for someone, that would be really amazing. Now, time out. What if you made that commitment every week? Just dream with me for a moment. What kind of community do you think Valley would be if every week everyone who's part of this church said, I am going to encourage someone? I am going to build someone up. I am going to have a positive impact on someone else's life every single week. I'll tell you what, this church, which is already doing that in many ways, it would become incredibly joyful. It would become full of hope. It would be known for its love in such magnificent ways. This is what it looks like to live in light of the promise. When you live in light of the promise, you you stay alert because of the promise that Christ has given you. When you live in light of the promise, you stay confident in who Christ is, in what he has done, and what he will deliver you into in your eternal resting place. And when you live in light of the promise, we, we stick together in the most meaningful ways possible. Heavenly Father, Father, once again, we just thank you for the incredible promise you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his death and resurrection, we have the promise of eternal life. We also have this promise of who we are, our identity, as your children, as those who are of the day, as those who are of the light. And Father, we just have such grateful hearts for what you've done in our lives. And we pray now that you would By your spirit, you would move in our minds in such a way and you would move in our hearts in such a way that we would begin to live in light of the promise more and more. God, I pray that because of this morning that our church as a whole, we will live lives that are alert. We will will pursue you in prayer and in reading scripture. We would pursue you by serving one another. Father, I pray that because of the text of of this morning's passage, that, that we would live confident 
in who Jesus is as our Savior, and in who Jesus is as our Lord. And Father, I pray that it has an incredible impact in the way we care and love each other. I pray that more and more we would have the reputation of a church that builds up one another, as a church that disciples one another, and as a church that is always encouraging one another to live in light of the promise. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.